Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back. Uh, live at five, the educated home buyer, where our goal is to help you buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership and financing. I got some re hold on here. There we go. Um, hey guys, welcome back. Um, with me, Josh Lewis, our resident mortgage professional. Josh, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I was showing everyone that I have got this little nugget of electrolyte in the bottom of my water and it's been driving me crazy. So you know, you by the me? end of the show, it will be gone. Um, it, so it, it will, uh, it'll go down one way or the other. Um, I typically like have a little saying that the beginning of the show was going that direction and got called off by the reverb in the, in the headset there. But, um, you know, we've had some changes over the last week, right? We've seen some increases in rates. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, crazy things, you know, last towards the end of last week with regards to Citibank coming out saying, you know, multiple increases with regards to the fed funds rate, which impacted interest rates. So a lot going around, uh, uh, you know, happening in the market. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about every week and, and is really the focal point at the moment are interest rates. Um, interest rates, key driver of the housing market. Um, one of the things that has kept the housing market going for, you know, so long um, have been low rates. And at the moment, we're still seeing, you know, buyers buy homes. And we'll talk about inventory here um, in just a minute. But Josh, let's let's talk about rates. Um, we have some charts that we're going to bring up tonight, too. Um, so let's just kind of a recap over the last week since the show, and then we'll kind of dive into it from there. Uh, we had a really bad day last Friday. And then when you, you keep thinking, well, it can't get any worse. And, and the reason why you say that is they certainly can get worse. Obviously, rates can go much higher from here. I'm not saying they will, but they could. Um, but generally, when you see... Um, Jeb, I want to pull up the chart. Oh, good. You can you can skip. Uh, I wanted to skip a slide and not give away your treat for everyone. Um, but this is this is what the bond chart has has done. And the only thing you need to know is higher is better. Higher uh, in in price. These candles up at the top mean lower rates. So this is what we had. Um, this goes back almost all of last year. Just super flat, narrow range, and right here around December-ish we just start seeing them falling off a cliff. Went sideways for a little bit and you're like, oh, okay, we've, we've probably seen this correction into you know the high 3% range. And then last week or the, the last month or so, just a straight line down, almost no green days in there. If they were, they were very minor in these big red candles. So that big red one was last Friday. Um, you know, we, we no saw one interest had, rates move, what, a half a percent in a day. I mean, it was, what the largest move they've seen in a day since what 1994 or something crazy yeah and this this move here in its entirety is the worst we've seen since uh since about 1994 i mean that's 900 basis points in mortgage backed security prices over the last 3 months so to put it in context 100 basis points is about a quarter percent so we've seen 900 so over 2% right. um and the expectation is even if rates are going to get worse from here, 
we should expect some sort of retracement at some point. And the, the most common uh, retracements follow Fibonacci sequences. So a 23% retracement of nine, uh, nine points would get us a little over two points. If we got to a 38% retracement, it gets us about 3.6 points. So anywhere from a half point to almost a full point of retracement, even if rates are going to get worse. Now the question or the, the statement that traders always talk about is don't try to catch a falling knife. We don't know where it's going to land. Right. So um, it's it's a tough one. I would still say we're, we're cautiously optimistic, but absolutely in a locking stance um, until we see um, probably a week or two of improvements. Because if you look, if I blew this chart up, Jeb, you can see we've had a couple of days here, just like a week or so ago, you go, okay, we hit this red line, which was support and then bounced higher for two days. And you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe we're going to run up into here or maybe even into here. And no, it just slammed down harder. So you want to look at the last two days and go, yes, last three trading days and say, that's positive, but we need a lot more than that after the monster negative move we've seen over the last 90 days. No. Yeah. And, and you and I, I mean, hell, we were talking earlier. I don't know if it was today or yesterday, you know, back in January when rates moved to like three and a half percent, we were thinking, wow, this is crazy. Like, can you believe rates are at three and a half percent? Now they're sitting close to five. So I don't want to give out too much, but Hey, here's the deal. Like we have a podcast, which many of you guys know now the educated home buyer podcast. And, you know, taking advice um, and comments from viewers, we've decided now to make this episode, this Wednesday Night Live, an actual episode on the podcast. So you can go back and listen to it, um, you know, and not have to watch the video and carry your phone in your pocket, you know, uh, with the video playing and all that good stuff uh, with YouTube. So you can actually watch it. But what I wanted to, to talk about here is next Tuesday, we actually talk about interest rates literally for 40 minutes. I, I don't know what the, the actual time frame of the podcast is, but we talk about interest rates, why we are where we are now, where we're likely to go, things driving rates. So if you're into podcasts, you listen to that, you want to get more informed on rates and why we're experiencing what we're experiencing, that comes out on Tuesday. It drops on Tuesday mornings. Um, and then every Friday will be the live. So this Friday will be this episode of, of uh, this, you know, question answer sequence, if you will, with regards to buyers and sellers out there. So if you don't have time to listen to this whole thing, go back and check it out later and, uh, and, and get it that way. So that's what I wanted to touch on, but we've got some other charts in here, Josh, I want to bring up, I don't know what order these things are in. So I'm going to slowly, let's go back to two. Let's yeah, that one. That so, one's well, that one's good. This one is really, really interesting to me in the sense that you know, this shows where home buyers bought in in the ten, uh, the top ten counties across the United States, going back to 2011, and where the other, you know, percentage, if you will, uh, of the U.S. They, they purchased elsewhere outside of those ten top top ten cities, and it looks fairly similar up until about 2017, and really, really interesting to me in 2021, where 80 percent. 80% of the population that bought in 2021, their, their focus, if you will, was on 10, the top 10 cities in the United States. The other 20% bought across the United States. So that's why when you're watching a lot of the YouTube channels out there and people are in, say, these major markets like, you know, uh, San Francisco or Southern California, LA area, or maybe even like, uh, you know, a Florida or a, in Austin, if you will, right? 
these these markets were the top markets of the year. And that's why it's crazy. And that's why if you're in any of these top 10 cities, it's been difficult to buy a property. It's you're not, you know, it's not an outlier, so to speak, that you've been having trouble getting property. Everybody is. It's because of the competition. So if you want a better chance, and I'm not telling you to do this, I'm just saying better chances to buy property are probably outside of those focal points because that's where everybody's concentrating. Phoenix, Austin, Boise, Idaho, you know, parts around LA. Those are the markets where people are moving and therefore driving up prices. And that's why it's been tough out there. Josh, you want to add anything on that one? No, it's the same same thing. Like we both looked at the chart and said, okay, that explains why our, our friends in Phoenix and uh, Houston and Georgia, you know, in the Atlanta market, like it's not fun because that's where everyone uh, everyone's ending up going. So when you, you look at that chart and seeing that's where all of the, the movement is going, it, it's interesting because you hear a lot, uh, you know, with, with that with people not having to be central to work, why are they moving to these populous counties? What weren't we hearing that everyone's moving further away? Maybe they're they're going from big cities in uh, in big coastal states to big cities that are more. And my and my guess is they're not focusing on a city specific. It's like not like it's Austin. It's the area around Austin would be my guess. It's like a metro area. Like they're they're considering probably L- Orange County part of LA Metro is what I would assume. It's they're talking about a bigger geographical region versus just a city specific in there, right? So just keep that in mind and and don't look too deep into what they're saying there. Just get an idea that if you're in one of these markets, that's why it's difficult. But this is something that's interesting, the inversion spread, right? Now, this is different because this is the 30-year inversion spread. Everybody right now is talking about the 210 inversion spread and you know what has happened historically when when it inverts. Um, did we invert today on the 210? Uh, you know, one of the reports that I follow said they did, but CNBC has a nice chart that shows you. I rolled through the entire day and didn't see any portion of the day where it went. Yesterday, it got really, really close. We were 0.005% uh, positive yesterday. So I, I didn't see it invert, but I, I did see. And, and Jeb, it's kind of important to tell everyone what what is yield curve inversion inversion right. why does it matter so it just means that normally when you're looking at if we plot you know three month treasuries out to 30 year treasuries the chart looks like this from that goes um, from the low end of the short terms to the longer term is a higher interest rate well when it inverts it means that longer term rates are lower than the shorter term interest rates which doesn't make sense um, so what, what we're seeing right now is uh, you're able to get a greater yield by buying you know, uh, a five-year treasury here than a 30-year treasury. And so think about that. You're going to get less of a return for locking up your money for 30 years Longer. than for five yeah. years. So it, it's a it, sign that something is not healthy in, in the economy. You know, one of the things that, that we were looking at this morning, Jeb pointed out that it's it's kind of like having a fever. It doesn't mean you're sick and going to die, but it's a sign that something's not going right in your body. It's not a normal feature uh, of the market to see the yield curve inverted. And one of these charts here, Jeb, this- Well, let's so- let's talk about this one just clear. I mean, just before you switch back. And the reason I brought this up, this is the 30-year. Nobody's even talking about the 30-year at the moment, really. But the reason I brought this up is because it's important to note that if you go back to, you know, 05, to almost 06, that's when it inverted. But look how long it took for it to actually change, right? Before the recession actually started to happen at that time. Now, what, 
about a year and a half, 18 months, two years later, everybody's look, yep. talking about once it inverts, it, it's look, not an immediate change, guys. Look it, at this, look at this slide time. here, it's, Jeb. The, yep. the gray bars are the recessions that you're talking yeah, about. You so go. we went negative here in 2000. Recession starts, you know, late yeah, 2001, perfect. early 2000. We go negative here in 2007. It doesn't really the the recession is, as defined. They 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 define it looking back, and they say it started here what early 2008. And then this one's crazy to me that we almost inverted, came really close, about to where we we are right now in late 2019. And then we have a recession in 2020. And the reason why I say that's crazy is it we all look at, at that recession yeah. as a black swan, like. No one saw it coming and you you couldn't, you didn't know COVID was coming. It was very short, very deep, but that's crazy that that yield curve inversion did predict it. And that timeline on average is about 16 months. So if we're, if we're flirting with inverting right now, we're uh, probably a 12, 16, 24 months out from a, an actual recession, but it tells you what happens going forward. And, and again, you know, Jeb, we keep hearing people talk about stagflation, which is something that's happened in American history exactly yes. one time. Yeah. For you to believe that interest rates are going to stay elevated through a recession, you have to either believe the economy is solid, there's not going to be a recession, or that we're in some sort of bizarro land where, where prices well, we, are going we to are stay in that, inflated. But... Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that the normal laws of economics that have, have lasted for you know 100 years, that they've been repealed and we're in a, a different place now. And you can probably tell by the way I'm saying, I don't believe that. We're going to get a recession here in the next 12 to 24 months. It's going to be, if not brought on, at least exacerbated by the Fed waiting way too damn long and letting inflation get out of control and then coming in too late, too hot and, and putting the brakes on really, really hard. Right. And this is uh, this is the inversion chart here, right? Yeah. yeah so the and, and then we did have someone, Pablo, came in in here and basically said that he he saw it um, on Chatham when, when it happened. So. Perhaps it did. I mean, obviously, people are saying it, it did happen. So that that signals recession in a couple of years. And in that podcast that I mentioned earlier, guys, we dive into what that actually means for interest rates, for the economy, for house prices, that sort of thing. Right. So, you know, that's what it's, it's not what's happening right now. It's what does it impact 12 months from now, six months from now, a year, two years, three years from now. That's what's important. Too many people are worried about tomorrow and not worried about you know, and I, I shouldn't say worry because worry is not the right word, but just focus on the things you can control. And if you're buying property, those things, like we've mentioned many, many times, time frame, you can, you, you know, or you can control how long you're in a house. Are you stretching yourself? Do you have money in the bank? These are things that you need to consider when buying a property in any market, in this market, more importantly, just because of all of the different catalysts going on. So, with that said, Josh, um, anything else we want to add or mention? I um, think you already mentioned it over in the comments, but I think yep. you should repost and explain to everyone our new toy that we've discovered that they can communicate with us on. Yes. And and also, uh, we do have a pick for the T-shirt. So last week, um, we, we did a – I got to find it. I'll find it here on while Josh is talking at some point in the future. But last week, we put a link – for one of the t-shirts from the educated home buyer. Um, we did have a winner that came in. And so I will reach out to them to, uh, I'll say the name on here, but I'll reach out to them to get the shirt size and all that good stuff. Um, but you mentioned, so Volley. So there's a new app. 
not I don't know how new it is, uh, but there's an app out there. So Discord is one of those places that people have used in the past to have communications back and forth. Um, and it's primarily a text-based platform, Discord is. There's a new app out, um, a newer app out called Volley. Volley allows you to have, you know, face-to-face -face interaction being recorded uh, via an app. So what we've done is we've started a channel, so to speak. It's not really a channel, but it's a place you can go to ask questions. So if you have questions about real estate, um, you can do a little Volley in there. Volley, is that right? Um, yep. Volley in there to ask the question. You know, you're on camera. We go back and answer it with with a reply, and everybody that goes in there can see those. So some people might have the same questions as you. It's just a way to 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 get more information, to have conversation versus you know sending somebody a you know a, typing up a, a long email. It's really quick to for thirty seconds to say, hey, this is you know my question, and then we can take you know ten seconds, fifteen seconds, twenty, whatever it is, and reply to that. What this what this isn't is a a place to um you know uh leave some long-winded you know um conversation that you want to have about housing right it's it's really there to ask quick questions get quick answers we all move on we all benefit so um josh anything you want to add on that think of it here's a fancy word asynchronous video voicemail you, did you, you copy know, that off their website not no bro i okay. remember i remembered it from the uh from the website and it's a good way of thinking so it's not a it's not a conversation where we're like right now jeb and i can talk back and forth um but you leave a video we can respond in a video um you could in theory leave a long-winded video on there it is unlikely to be watched in its entirety so if you have a question you have a thought um shoot it out there if you um want to troll us or say bad mean things don't do it It'll we will do it back to you it's really we'll, we'll do it back yeah in fact so uh yeah so use that if, if you have any interest at all it's like it would be like sending an email but i hate sending long-winded emails when you can just hop on and i'm a big you know voice dictation just say what i want in a text message and hit send it's essentially the same thing you're just recording it pretty quickly and uh and sending it out so give it a try um outside of that check out the podcast like you know, what you're watching now, if you find any value in the content. Um, again, we will post this on the podcast every Friday. So if you want to listen to this in its entirety, it will all be there. You can put us on like two speed and be done in, in an hour. Be great. Uh, yeah. are, are you are you saving your last slide for the end? Of I think show we or? should. We should slave it, save it for the end of the show. So okay. let's, let's do that. We'll remove this for now. Um, and let's get started. So we appreciate you guys being here as always. Uh, but we are here to answer your questions. So first time home buyers, sellers, maybe you're a move up buyer, move down seller. You've done it multiple times. If you have questions, put it in the comments. We'll do our best to get to them. Um, T Tom in here, uh, seems to think I'm articulate. So I've done something incorrect, uh, this entire time. Uh, but I, I appreciate the comment. A lot of you guys are talking about interest rates locking them in. So Josh mentioned earlier a little bit of a retracement, right? And I might have hinted at it um, as well. Here's the deal, guys. You can, one of two things. If you have a loan right now that needs to be locked or you're going into escrow on a property, you have three options. One, you let it float, see what happens. You gamble, baby. The second one is you lock it. Security. And if you do decide to lock it, you don't look at it every day. You move on. You, you're happy with your rate. You move on. The third thing is 
you know, Josh, what would be the third thing that you would do? I said there were three. I, I didn't really have a just, third, just I guess. Just bury your head in the sand. And yeah, bury it. your head like in the sand. I don't know what I was thinking the third when I was coming up with those in my head. But the the float um, option at the moment, because rates have pulled back a little bit, maybe you just lock that baby in versus trying to gamble and see where rates go. Could they improve? Sure, they could. But they could also get worse again. And if you were looking, staring at higher rates just a day or two ago, and you have the ability potentially to lock in something a little bit lower, why not take advantage of that and lock it in? That would be my advice. You know, there, there's a, a saying, if you like it, lock it. It's really good advice, especially in this environment, um, unless you want to gamble and, and try to play, play, the, play the odds. That that was actually one of Jeb's raps when he used to have the herringbone and the and the stash. If you like it, yeah. lock it. If you like it, lock it. Yeah, that, that was like break, when girls had the whole break dance. Routine. I was like, hey, you want to lock me in? You like me? <laughs> lock it in. I never said that, and uh, yeah, never had that problem. Uh, but let's see what we got here. So Alex has a question um, about conforming loan limit increases. So he's asking if they, or perhaps she, um, he or she. Uh, conforming loan limit increase every year. If so, what do you expect they will increase to? So let's talk about this, Josh, because it, it is, there is a formula that goes into this and it does happen every year. Um, so answer the question, I guess that the, easy. Yes. They're tied to the FHFA home price index. You guys watch there's 900 indexes. Zillow has theirs. Uh, Redfin has theirs. Case Schiller has theirs. There's 42 of them. Um, but the federal housing finance authority has their own home price index. And what they do is they take the year over year change every October, November, um, and about Thanksgiving time, they roll out the figure. So what we're seeing right now is or what, October, November, December, January, February, March, we're about halfway there. And this year has been every bit as hot as the prior year. Now, if that trend continues, you're gonna see a 17, 18% increase like we saw last year. And if that's the case, a 17% increase puts us a, a little over 750, about 757. Um, and then the high balance limit for those of you in high cost areas is 150% of that, should be at a million 135. So I think it's fairly safe to say, Forming limits next year are going to be over 700 and over a million one, even if the market tails off between here uh, and and the time that they they measure the year over year change. It's going to be a big, it's going to be a big number. And I, I don't know, uh, something that's kind of escaped everyone's notice in the big spike in interest rates, it kind of gave the FHFA cover. The FHFA um, regulates Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they came out and dictated changes in the loan level price adjustments for high balance loans, those loans in high cost areas that are above the, the, the standard conforming limit. Um, so anything above 647, 200 falls into those categories. And we've always, since the introduction of high balance loans after the last downturn, a cash out high balance refinance always had essentially a 1% tax on it. You could pay a point uh, or you could pay about a quarter percent extra in the interest. Well, now the FHFA said, we're going to do that on purchases as well. So any purchase with less than 25% down is a full point, and that can go down to as little as, as like a half percent point or 0.625. So any way you cut it, if you're taking advantage of the high balance loan limits, you're paying an eighth to a quarter higher in interest rate. And the reason for that is this question that you're asking. I don't know if you guys noticed, but when they made the announcement last year and the high balance was just within a hair of being a million dollars, we saw headlines in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Why is 
the government insuring loans for millionaires? Why are we making loans to millionaires? Because they're million dollar loans for rich people. And if you're in Southern California, if you're in any of the other high price markets, I, I can tell you, I have clients taking out eight, $900,000 loans that are not rich people. And they don't have an option within 30 miles of where they live for a single family residence with less than say 800 to a $900,000 purchase price. So it's hard for people in other parts of the country to understand and realize that. Um, but when you get, you know, clickbait headlines complaining about the government helping rich people that aren't actually rich, it, it's been painful for a lot of our customers and it's pushing people into FHA loans that otherwise could have had a better conventional loan. So rant over. No, good stuff. Um, so Kalar earlier came in and did a super chat uh, for $5. Thank you. Or $4.99. So $5. Appreciate the support there. Uh, the comment along the, you know, with that was I bought a house at 505 in Ockworth, Georgia on a 475 listing. Next door neighbor listed for 550 now. Amazing. Have equity. That's awesome. Don't worry about the equity. Just worry about the monthly payment. I mean, it's awesome that you got it, but it's, it's, I think there's too many people out there focusing on the equity in their property versus just buying a house and, and living it and, um, and not getting caught up in the, in the craziness. But I guess that, uh, a, a thing to remember, yeah. like when I see this and Jeb, we do see it over and over. So I don't want anyone counting on this, planning on it, thinking, Hey, pay whatever. Cause the next person's going to pay even more and I will have equity pay what you are comfortable paying for a home. But when you hear people in the comment section here, in uh, other places saying these crazy people out there paying more than a home's worth, and then the next one sells for more and people are sitting on equity. Remember, we are in a tremendous supply demand imbalance. There are not enough homes. Those that are willing and able to buy are having to pay a premium to get homes. And, and that doesn't mean they're overpaying. That is what the market is, is the market value of the homes today. Good stuff. Um, Acousta Pella, Acousta Pella says I should replace Meet Kevin's spot in Millennial Money. The only problem, I'm not a millennial. Are I, you? You're 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 an Xer. You're, I'm, you're I'm, like, I, yeah, I'm like on the you're a baby I think Xer. The, depending on which one you look at, like I'm I'm 1980, right? So I'm either you know in or I'm out. But regardless, I'm okay being out if that's the case. Uh, but I think they probably want someone younger, appeals to more of that audience than me. Um, I would take the gig. Uh, seems like a pretty good gig to sit there and just chat about money and all that good stuff. But Jeb, I haven't been asked. Jeb, Jeb went to the favorite comment that was complimentary of him. Oh, absolutely, I did. I, I, I searched all of them. I, that was, was the best one. one therefore, I clicked on it. Also, complimentary of you. S. Scott is on a one and a half hour walk. Jesus, where are you walking to? And he's waiting for the best YouTube channel to start. Thanks for keeping us informed. So if we can keep you moving on a one and a half hour walk, that's impressive. We we did something right. Um, so let's see. Uh, I saw a comment here. Um, here we go. So uh, SC2620, have you heard from any builders if the price of supplies are starting to stabilize or are those still rising with inflation, interest rates, et cetera? So I was on another channel last night with uh, some gents from Austin, Texas, um, that run two awesome channels in Austin. Um, and on their channel, I mean, they deal with a lot of new construction uh, in in the Austin, the outskirts of Austin, if you will. And they're having problems there that, you know, new builds are being pushed out three months, four months because of, they're saying primarily due to like labor. 
um, is is one of the hardest things for them to find is is good labor. And they're kind of always throwing it back on labor. But the cost of supplies and that sort of thing is playing a part in all of that. Um, you know, I don't know that it's starting to stabilize more so than anything else. I mean, because there is inflation, right? So, you know, what you have at the moment is gas, right? Gas is 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 something that controls a lot of different pieces of the puzzle, right? When gas goes up, it doesn't just control your automobile. It can it, it also factors into shipping of goods, whether it's, you know, it's on a boat or it's on an airplane or whether it's being driven across the country. Gas prices rise. It costs more to ship those said goods, which in theory also raises the cost of things. So, yes, I mean, I can tell you without it happening, it isn't affecting builders in some form or fashion. The question is, when does it stabilize? And even if it does, chances are builders realize what they have at the moment is is somewhat of a scarcity. And that is new construction, especially if you're in certain markets out there where there is low supply. They have something that a lot of people want. I mean, Josh, what we should have started with was that article that I sent you the other day. Hell, we should have had her on the show where she bought a house. What state was that in? Was it is somewhere in the South? Say, was it Georgia? I want to say it was Texas, but it probably was Georgia. I, I don't remember. It was it was somewhere. How's that? It was somewhere. <laughs> it was um, in the United States. <laughs> It was in the continental United States, um, the lower 48, if you will. Um, and she bought a house and five days before closing, they canceled her contract and uh, in basically raised the price by 25%. And so that is what you're dealing with in this market. And I can find the article and I can send it to you guys or, or post it somewhere where you guys can check it out. But it was interesting. It was it made clear in there that the contract was unilateral and basically benefited the builder, not the buyer at all. And that the buyer basically came back to them and gave them their deposit back, but didn't, as of the article, give them the money that they paid for the upgrades that they did on the property because they had to pay those out of pocket up front. They, and then they resold the property for 25% more. And so that is what is happening out there in the building world. I know that was a long way of answering that question, but I just thought it was interesting and people should know if you're dealing with new construction, make sure you read and understand those contracts. It is it is extremely important to understand what you're signing. Um, you know, builders contracts very much benefit the builder. And in some cases like this one really benefit the builder if if that contract is what, you know, the report said it was that I read. So all it right. was Georgia, Jeb. I went Georgia. back through the the interminable uh, thread that we. We have should have a volley where we just talk about it. A volley where we just then I would not be able to search it and would not you have found it. Yeah, that would be a problem. Um, let's see here. Is there a recession coming? We kind of touched on that. Um, so this is a good one. Patrick is asking, how would the Fed selling mortgage-backed securities instead of buying them affect home prices, Josh? So. It's a great question, and it's something that um, it's it's a large part of why rates are as high as they are right now. So historically, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, the spread between the 10-year treasury and mortgage rates is about 1.7%. So today, I think the latest number was 4.79 average 30-year fixed rate, and the 10 years at 235. So we have a 2.35 spread. So that spread is about 0.65% more 
than it otherwise is. And that is largely due to the market being deathly afraid that the Fed is going to do exactly that. If they start selling their, their mortgage-backed securities um, and, and not reinvesting. And not reinvesting. So the first part is, and what that means is every month you make a payment on your mortgage. So the lender, the holder of the loan, which is the Fed in this case, is getting some principal back. So instead of allowing their balance on the, the aggregate of loans that are owed out to reduce, they take that all the principal payments and reinvest them. Anyone that refinances pays off their $300,000 mortgage, they reinvest and buy. So the first step is to stop reinvesting. The second step is outright selling and saying, we're just going to start selling a billion dollars of, of uh, mortgage-backed securities a month. And during all of COVID, they were doing $40 billion a month. So it would take forever if they were a seller of a billion. They're going to need to be a seller of 10 or 15 or $20 billion. Um, I do not think the economy is going to cooperate and allow them to do that. But right now it's, it's a, it's a valid threat and the market is saying, Hey, we don't know. So cool. We're more comfortable with the risk in treasuries than the risk in mortgage backed securities. And that risk largely being the additional supply coming to, to market. Now it could be a little bit overblown because if rates are higher, like they are right now, the Fed was taking down a ton of volume in a very heavy volume market, meaning the last two years, tons of purchases, tons of refinance. I believe there was 3.9 trillion, close to $4 trillion of mortgages done last year. The projection is like 2.4 trillion this year. So we already have, by the nature of the market of rates being higher, 1.5 trillion of mortgage-backed securities coming out of the market. So they could sell into that and not have as big of an impact. But the, the long answer is, yeah, there's no way they decrease their holdings either through repurchase or reinvesting or outright selling without impacting interest rates. And I would go so far as to say that even though they haven't done it, it has already impacted interest rates. Once we see treasuries start going down and the Fed sort of getting to the end of the tightening cycle, if they're not able to sell or signaling heavily that they're going to sell, we'll see some of that risk premium come out and mortgages will come more in line with where treasuries are trading. Um, yeah, I was reading idiotic comments in the thing. Sorry, I got this. I got <laughs> did this. you did you delete I, them so I don't have to? See I didn't. Them? I didn't. I, I want you to see them just because uh, they they fuel me to uh, to do something. I'm not sure which it is. Maybe punch the computer here in a moment. Ah, uh, kidding. I don't really care. But it's uh, just you know, it's just the same people over and over again. Uh, Alex, Alex says, wouldn't the Fed step back in with bond purchases if housing? Um, 17% of GDP slows down too much. So Josh, we've kind of talked about the Fed adding some ammunition back to their um, arsenal, if you will. Now, a slowdown in housing doesn't mean that they're going to start buying back um, you know, bond purchases. But if something bigger happened, um, you know, more of a, a bigger event, a, a real slowdown with recession, if the economy really grinded to a halt, they could use that sort of thing. But what's what's your thoughts on it just in, in general? So the Fed is absolutely not going to step back in and stimulate absence, uh, a huge, huge shock to the economy. Um, it, what they've, they've taken a lot of heat for 
the way they've manipulated the markets over the last 15 years. And, and they're largely responsible for where we're at and bubbles, whether, whether they crash, let's say, let's say excessive exuberance in both equities and housing. Home prices would not be as high as they are if the Fed hadn't done what they did for the last 12, 15 years. I think more likely what you're seeing here is they will not be able to sell off their holdings either through reinvestments or outright selling. And that will keep rates lower once markets are confident that they're just gonna keep all their mortgage-backed securities on the balance sheet uh, over time. I couldn't envision them stepping back in without another unforeseen event. Something beyond just a, a typical recession would, would be required for them to step back in and start buying mortgage-backed securities again. But you're absolutely right. The housing sector of the economy is huge and very important. So they have every incentive to not let it become a drag on the overall economy. No, agreed. Um, and Diana, you know, ask a question, you know, since the yield curve has inverted, is your opinion on the housing market changed at all? No, no, it hasn't. It's, it's way too early to figure out what's going to happen and, and the impact on housing right now. I mean, again, housing is being driven by supply and demand. It's not being driven by, you know, uh, people buying, um, you know, the, the two or 10 year yield spread uh, bonds at the moment. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's way too many factors playing into the housing market at the moment to be concerned with that. Uh, you know, what needs to happen in the housing market is you need, again, I mean, there's a lot of people out there saying, Hey, listen, you need interest rates high. I mean, one, one of the guys we follow, Josh, you need interest rates high and you need them to stay high in order to create balance in the market. And by stay high, we're not talking about weeks, we're talking months, you know, some time for that to happen to actually have an impact on housing. I don't know that the the market can stay, interest rates can stay that high. So I'm curious to see how that actually impacts supply. You know, I mean, at the moment, supply is continuing to move. I mean, we've seen interest rates jump, right? 2% since the beginning of the year. Hell, a half a percent since last Friday. And granted, it just happened. But what I can tell you is I'm still getting outbid on offers that I put in with buyers. You know, the inventory here locally, I didn't mention at the beginning of the show, but as I came on, we had 1,454 properties in Orange County, which is essentially what we had last week when we did the show. And we had 98 homes in, in Huntington Beach on the market. Essentially the the same, maybe a little bit less or maybe one or two more. It was, it's about the same. So nothing is changing at the moment, guys. You need changes to happen in order for changes to happen. And, and by that, I mean the housing market. I think, Jeb, probably the, the one element that everyone sort of underestimated, no one expected rates anywhere near 5% this year. Like literally, no, no, no one was projecting it. But even the what, people we thought were idiots, like uh, the NBA, uh, uh, yeah, NBA, right? The Mortgage Bankers Association. Yeah. Were predicting like some crazy number over four. And we were like, ha, ha, yeah, you've never been right. And now they were right, yeah. but they were wrong. Well, so. they, they weren't. They weren't because they didn't project five or five and a quarter. But what, what we're saying here is, everything in terms of home prices comes back to that supply demand balance and you're losing supply as rates go higher a lot of homeowners have really good interest rates on their homes and it is a large disincentive to sell so just like higher rates are not taking every buyer out of the market they're certainly not taking every seller out of the market but it's having an impact on both sides is it equal is it taking an equal amount of buyers and equal amount of sellers out of the market i don't know That's but it's definitely say. having that impact
No, for sure it is. Absolutely. It keeps some buyers from wanting to, to buy uh, or from, from some sellers wanting to sell rather. Sorry. Um, Nicholas had a question. Would an agent not present our offer if uh, she was representing both sides of the deal? Could it happen? Absolutely. It could happen. It's completely unethical. It shouldn't happen. Um, does it? Probably. Um, I, it's hard to say. I haven't seen, you know, I, I don't have any confirmation personally of it actually happening, but I've heard people say that in the past. So it could um, ask the seller, you know, that the seller is supposed to, um, you know, when they decline an offer, there's a signature line on that contract to, to, to sign that decline of the offer. Ask for, ask for the seller to sign it, um, saying that they saw the offer. I mean, that's, that's a, a, a way to confirm that they did, but even then you can't confirm that they're the ones that signed it. So it's, you know, there's no real easy way to, to, to get, you know, get the answer you're looking for. Uh, I would just tell you to focus on again, what you can control, just go out and look for another property and make good offers. Um, S and E media said, I understand corporate home buying has increased. Do you think corporation buying homes cash and renting them out is adding to the imbalance in the market? Yes, yeah, for sure it is. But understand, it is not the numbers that people want to make it out to be. It is not making up 20%, 30% of, of the transactions out there. Everybody wants to blame you know, these companies for the market the way it is. They're a piece of the puzzle. They are not the puzzle. They didn't create this entire issue. They're just adding to it. Uh, so that's important to note. Now, if you're in a market, for example, you know, like Phoenix, for example, there's a lot of people moving there, a lot of people renting. There's a higher concentration of, you know, larger companies buying investment property and renting them out because they get good yields. It's a fixed asset versus, you know, inflation rising. Um, for for many of these funds out there doing it, it's it's a smart move to continue to bring in cash. So it does happen, but again, it, it is not um, typically what you're competing against in most markets it, it it does you know um occasionally you're up against some of them but not always josh anything you want to add on that one no it, it, it it's definitely an element but like you said probably not as big as most people make it out to be it would be good if it wasn't happening it's taking supply out of the market at the time when we don't have enough supply so every unit out of the market is not a, a good one so two things here, two two good things I want to touch on. Both of these were things that I, I wanted to bring up at the beginning and for whatever reason got sidetracked. Um, imagine that. Uh, the Great Gatsby says Dallas Fed said we should be encroaching into a bubble. So what do you think about that, Josh? So because, you know, I've heard people say, you know, they didn't say the Dallas Fed. They just say the Fed said we're we're approaching a bubble. And it's no, it's not the Fed. It is so the Dallas the, Fed chair said that. Yeah, well, well, actually, no, the Dallas Fed did a steady on it, and they just released okay. it yesterday. Um, and I started reading it last night. The methodology seems sound. Um, I didn't get to the conclusions, so I, I got to plead ignorance on this one. But I'll send it to Jeb, and we'll we'll both take a look at it, and let's circle back to it next week because the methodology. A lot of these things you see, there's clickbait headlines, and you read, and it's some off the wall economic group and they have some crazy methodology this seemed sound um, and the conclusion was we could be in some markets approaching bubble behavior um, for the, sure the, you absolutely the the yeah. biggest thing that that like 
having lived through the last market and the difference here, one of the numbers that we talked about, you know, Jeb, this week is is what affordability looks like. And I saw um, First American Research, yep. First American Economic Research has an awesome tool, their housing affordability index, and it says that we are 26% more affordable than we were at the 2006 peak. Yep. And you go, okay, there's a giant um, asterisk with that. At that time, home prices went that high because they were decoupled from incomes because people didn't have to have income. You just say whatever you want. So if you wanted the house, you could get the house. We do not have that situation any longer. So it's a different, it's a pro in our favor in terms of the current market. It's also a con of saying, hey, if in 2006, the ceiling was here and we've got 26% of affordability to lose before we hit that ceiling, I don't think we actually do. I don't know if it's 5% or 15%, but the ceiling is not what we actually saw in, in 2006. We've talked about Bruce Norris here on the show before. He measures affordability throughout California um, and county by county, and he looks at historical levels. For us in Orange County, affordability always hit a ceiling at 17%. In the last uh, market, it went to like 10 or 11% because there was no cap on what you could buy. You just had to want to buy the house. You didn't have to have a down payment. You didn't have to have income. You didn't have to have good credit. You just had to want the house. Well, and that's going to bring me into the next question I'm going to come out. Part of the problem back then as well is that you could take a shorter term loan. You could take an, an adjustable rate loan. It could be interest only. It could be negatively amortized, which means that you weren't even paying the principal on that loan. So every month, your loan balance was actually increasing at a time where home value started decreasing. And so that was a driver in the market, right? Is those adjustable rate loans, two and three years, many of them. And what happened is as those loans became due, right? So two and three years was up. It was going to adjust to a you know uh, a higher interest rate at that time, and some of them still had the interest only on them, but they still adjusted to a higher rate. Well, when they went to adjust and people wanted to refinance or do whatever, you know, credit had changed. People couldn't get loans. Values had dropped. People were in a in a predicament, if you will, um, to put it lightly, and that is what exacerbated the the issue at that time with regards to the number of defaults, foreclosures, all that good stuff. So it brings me into this question, Josh. We're hearing a lot of people talk about ARMS, adjustable rate loans. How many ARMS, I was going to say, how many ARMS do you have? How many adjustable rate mortgages have you done in the last, let's say, two years? A handful. And, and let's okay. talk about what What's they a handful mean? I mean, how many loans you do a year and how many of them are adjustable rate? We did 218 last year, 218 okay. loans, and there were less than less than 10 and nearly okay. everyone fell into these categories. It wasn't, Hey, I'm getting a Fannie Mae loan or an FHA loan or a VA loan. And I would like to take a, a hybrid arm fixed for three years or five years or seven years. It was a non QM loan where the 30 year fixed option is, is significantly worse because the lenders incentivize you to not tie up their money for that long of a period of time or a portfolio loan where they can be attractive. Um, some credit unions, some banks that are loaning their own money, again, don't want to tie their money up for 30 years. They don't want to expose themselves to that interest rate risk. So they make it very attractive. They will actually make a less profitable loan to them to not have the long-term interest rate risk. So when I compare again, FHA arms, Fannie Mae arms, I'm not seeing any benefit there. Um, 
but I definitely, there are unique portfolio loan programs out there. Portfolio meaning the loans not being sold into the secondary markets or the lenders are choosing to incentivize borrowers to take a, a 5-1 arm, a 7-1 arm, a 10-1 arm. And for the most part, the three ones and the five ones are not attractive um, because they require qualifying well above the start rate. They have a calculation of, of where you have to account for the potential payment shock. Once you go out past five years, um, the Fed considers it's more like, and I shouldn't say the Fed, the, the FHFA and their requirements, they consider it more of a, a longer term, more stable fixed loan. So they don't have the requirements where we hit you with a payment shock figure in terms of qualifying. So really, what are we talking about? Seven one arms, 10 one arms, and there, a lot of those are seven six and 10 six now. The last time arms were popular, most of them were tied to LIBOR. LIBOR no longer exists, so now they're tied to a, another index called SOFR, and for whatever reason, most of those are six-month year, six month adjustment cycles. So the number after the slash, the 7176, means it adjusts once a year or it adjusts every six months after you hit the end of the fixed period and, and it adjusts. And for whatever reason, the the six the every six month adjustment period is is more common and prevalent, whereas it was the every 12 months uh, during the last cycle. And in in layman terms or, or really short, there's not a lot of arms happening at the moment. So arms are not going to be a driver of any potential defaults at the moment. There's really, like Josh said, very little advantage in taking an arm at the moment just because the interest rates are higher than the 30-year fixed loans in many cases. So not really something to, to even discuss at the moment or even really consider um, for many people out there. And Jeb, we have the, the name of the day is Council of Wolfgang comes with a, another question. Just what is today's interest rate sitting at? Just to give you guys an idea, um, we talked about what is it National Mortgage News or National Mortgage Daily publishes their index. And, and as of today, they were quoting 479 nationwide for the best qualified conventional borrowers. I've got 4.625 with 0, 0.0 lender fees. Your FHA and VA is right in the 4 to 4.125% range. And then the conventional high balance um, is is going to be up in that four seven five uh, range, depending again how much of a down you have, because we have some of those hits uh, that we didn't have previously. So we're well below five percent. I shouldn't say well below. We're safely below five percent, and government loans are just over four percent. But that's a monstrous uptick in the last three months. All right, good stuff. Um, some questions got a lot of comments here trying to get to some questions i might have missed some i'll go back up but uh anya says are homes and hoas more valuable if so are property taxes higher so i wouldn't say a property in, in an association is is more valuable i mean there's people that want to live in associations and people that absolutely do not want to live in associations for one reason or another so I don't know that one, um, typically speaking, but you know, from experiences, homes with associations are are typically better kept neighborhoods as a whole because there are restrictions and and certain things that have you know that that can't take place in that neighborhood or shouldn't take place otherwise. Fines and violations occur and that sort of thing, and um, usually a little bit more turnkey as a community. And so, in theory, yeah, they can fetch a higher value because of that, but I wouldn't say that's always going to be the case. I mean, there are some communities here in Huntington Beach that don't have an association and the values there are are higher. I mean, they're bigger lots, they're more custom built houses, that sort of thing. So it can go one of two ways. Um, and it really just boils down to what you like in a house and whether or not you want, you know, your neighbor to be able to, to park an RV or a boat in the driveway or paint their house bright blue or whatever. I don't, 
I like an association from that standpoint because it keeps things, you know, manicured. And, you know, I don't like making the payment every month, but you know what? It keeps the riffraff out where Josh lives in a community with no HOA. And if his neighbor wants to, you know, put a statue in the front yard of, of himself, you know, with a towel around him, he can do that. I mean, it's that sort of thing. I mean, it, it doesn't, I, I, to each you, his own. You, you read my mind, Jeb. I was going to say, I wished a few of my neighbors lived in an HOA, but they do not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Bill Gross, I mean, he had that issue here in, uh, in wasn't he in, the problem though? Well, or was it the I, neighbor? Well, was I thought he was music. the problem. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, um, uh, Pimco, what a founder of Pimco, I guess he was at one point uh, or a co-founder or something. Anyhow, um, had a property here in Emerald Bay. I think, I think it was in Emerald, Emerald Bay in Laguna beach. And, uh, his neighbor put a statue in the backyard that he didn't like. And so he started playing the, uh, Gilligan Island theme music at a, like a, a blaring, um, decibel because the neighbor hated it. And so, or he really liked it. So he played it so much. I forget what it was, but anyhow, the HOA got involved and anyway, so you either like them or you don't, it's, it's your call, but I wouldn't, um, it necessarily doesn't really affect property taxes so much. What affects property taxes, at least here in California, what affects property taxes here in California are bonds that, that, that cities have in places and that sort of thing, um, that might raise them a little bit here and there and any Melarus that a community may have from new construction and that sort of thing. But as a whole, a property in an association, especially an established established association, isn't going to have higher property taxes than, say, one that doesn't. All right. Let's see. I can't believe that's legal. How do I write or can I write an offer where if interest rates go up before my loan funds, I can renegotiate on price to get the same payment? Um, you can't um, that I'm aware of uh, other than potentially doing some sort of float down and or going to a different lender. Josh, am I reading that correctly? Or is there something I'm missing there on that no, question? I think she was asking, she wanted, she was talking about the the lady who the builder backed out on her. She wants to write a contract ah, where, where if anything changes, she I gets back you. Okay. out at the 11th hour. I got you. Yes. No. Agreed. I, I'm with you. Yes, it and, is. And the answer, Jeb, is it comes back to leverage. The seller has leverage. They have a little nugget of gold that multiple people are lined up and want. So they get to come out with their 120 page contract that covers them six ways to Sunday and doesn't do much of anything for you. No, absolutely. It, it is. Yeah, it, it is. We, we, we came up with very, many scenarios where it benefited the, uh, the builder and it didn't, we didn't think of one that actually benefited the seller when you and I were, or the buyer when we were having that conversation. So, um, Jeb, I wanted, I yep. want to do something fun here. We, oh, we yeah. have do, if you go through this one, but then I've got a question that we're going to answer that people make 15 minute videos going through and we can answer it in about 40 seconds. So let's, let's hit always be serving first. All right. It, oh, let's start over. Is it the real estate agent or the buyer that decides the amount to come in at for a first offer? It, I can't speak. Is it more art or science coming up with the right number to start with? So it is very much, uh, there's no science involved. Um, it is all <laughs> art. Uh, and it's very much a guessing game in this environment. I mean, the what I used to do when writing offers has changed a little bit. It's just progressed in, in, the, in the sense of the, what the numbers that I look at in helping a buyer come up with an offer, it is not the seller. I mean, it's not the agent's responsibility to tell a buyer, um, nor is it uh, their right to tell a buyer what they should offer. Um, it's our job uh, to guide 
a buyer. So to give them advice um, on where comps are and to give you an idea of where things may sell and or things you should do. But in no way am I telling a, a buyer this is the number you need to write or anything like that. Right. It's it's very much, you know, giving you the information and helping you make a decision. This market is very difficult, though. It, it is even for experienced agents, there is not an easy way to come up with a number that a buyer is willing to, that a buyer should offer on a property because there's so many different factors, so many people willing to do things we haven't seen before. So it is very much an art um, and, and a guessing game. Guessing game is probably the better. Um, educated uh, guessing game, Joe. Yeah, educate. Yeah, yeah. But it, that that's a better description of what it is versus saying it's a science because it's definitely not. Uh, Josh, you had a game we're going to play. We're going to go over to Brandon here. And he says, uh, do you think I can, first off, let's, this is a separate, two separate questions really. Do you think I can afford a $200,000 house? People ask me all the time, how much home can I can afford? I have no idea how much home you can afford. You and someone identical to you can spend very differently. One of you stays home, eats uh, bread and cheese sandwiches, and the other one's out every night at Morton's. So Forget I like the no second afford. guy better. The second guy's more fun as, yeah, long as, absolutely. as long as the tab is on him. But when we look at this, what can you qualify for? So your income is $63,000. Make it super simple. Call it $5,000 a month. So at $5,000 a month and a 45% debt to income ratio, which is the high end for a conventional loan that puts you at $2,250, you've got $400 of, of debt. You can afford a payment of about $1,850. So if we allow that 30% of that to go to taxes and insurance, it says about $1,295 is what we can have as a payment. And if we're at $475, which should be the high end of an interest rate today, it gets you to about $250. So a $200,000 house, you should absolutely be able to afford. Now, if you're in an area with high property taxes, um, high homeowners insurance, it could definitely bring that down, but it shouldn't bring it down below you know, the 200 level you're looking at. So that's a reasonable price for you to be looking at in terms of homes. Good stuff. Less than four. I don't know. I didn't count down, but I'm going to say that was less than 40. So good, good job. And I think he was bagging on me for making a video really long to answer that question. No, there are people who this is their channel. Half of their videos are, can I buy this? Can I buy that? And they drag them out forever. It's like, hey, grab the calculator and go. There you go. Um, a Casas been watching the channel for some time. Enjoy the conversation, even if I'm not in the market closed in July of 2020. So congrats to you. So bought at 377 now at least 550. So good stuff there. Uh, Mr. Casas, um, want to do that part in the show. It's been an hour in where I ask a favor of you guys, and that's to hit that little thumbs up under the video and or the thumbs down. If you think we suck, uh, again, it helps the algorithms, helps people see it. The goal here is to educate. We're here every week for two hours to answer your questions away from our families, away from um, kids. Maybe, what? That's, you are. Maybe that's why this you is do a it. Blessing. That's why you've all no, no. Uh, in, in, in all reality, we appreciate the support. You know, we uh, we like it. You know, the thumbs up helps us, you know, know how many people engage. And as I mentioned earlier, there is a podcast along with this channel. The Educated Home Buyer. It looks like this in the corner there. If you search uh, any podcast platform, you'll come across it. We have conversations like this in more detail about specific topics. So next Tuesdays is interest rates. We're going to talk 30, 40 minutes on interest rates. And then every Friday will be this live put down in just audio format so you can listen to it off air if that's what you choose to do. So um, we appreciate you being here and um, and handing the thumbs up. And we are going to move along after I get that off the screen.
All right. So let's say we go to where are we? Where are we? Uh, let me throw this out. This yep. is a, a, a regular viewer, a yep. normal viewer. Alex says, uh, sorry, I'm 12 to 13 minutes behind. Thanks for answering my question. I'm in the eight hundred to $900,000 range, trying to stay out of jumbo with 20 to 25% down. Um, Alex, I don't remember where you're at. Do you remember what part of the, the country he's in? I don't. I don't. Depending on where you're at, there are some good options for avoiding that. Reach out. Jeb's got the referral form. He'll throw our emails up. Uh, you can reach out direct. You can reach out through the form. Just um, let me know. If you're outside of California, we'll get you connected with people. There's there's some different things available. So when you get to a weird market like we're in right now, um, it pays to have access to multiple stuff. Um, a program that I'm thinking about here in California, I don't have access to. A good friend of mine does. And if it were a fit, we could actually connect you over there. So just let us know. There we go. Uh, we also have another YouTuber in the chat here, Christina. Um, so Christina, thank you for being here. Uh, she saw her name pop up a couple times. So um, also, uh, again, good information on housing, especially uh, if you're looking for more affordable options out there in the market. So check her out. Uh, let's see. We've got Mr. Bundy. Mr. Bundy hasn't been here the last couple of weeks. So he says, how does title work in escrow? Does it get shown to buyers and sellers immediately when you get into escrow? Does a lender look at it? So let's take a minute here, Josh. I mean, we touched on title insurance, what, last week or maybe the week before? Probably The, the cost, first time who pays for it and what yeah. it does. And, and that's the first time we'd really even seen it come up um, in, in the conversation because nobody even knows what the hell title is. Um, but when does I'll answer the question of when it shows up, or maybe you can answer the question of title and, and we can just dive into it. How's that? Absolutely. So let's talk about what title is first. Insurance. Yes. So title is insurance on the property. And what does it do, Josh? It insures you against clouds or defects in the title. It what is a cloud? What is clear a clear and marketable title to the property? So right. no one else has a claim. There's no easements running across your property. Someone's so, great great uncle stole the house from under his wife and, while she was away for the weekend. And or you were remodeling your property. You had a bunch of construction done. You had contractors do work. You decided not to pay those contractors. Those contractors put a lien on the house. They're ensuring that that stuff is paid prior to you buying the house. Therefore, you're not buying a house that has, you know, judgments, liens, uh, that sort of thing on it that you as a new buyer might have to pay. That's what title insurance does. It protects you. There's a policy and it also protects the lender um, in that case. So Al is asking, when does it get shown to buyers? It's typically, you know, it's it's one of those, those um, contingencies in the contract, right? So it's one of the, the the time frames that needs to be met and and depending on which market you're in but it's usually within the first 7 7 days of of contract you'll have that that title report um sent to you who reviews it the buyer reviews it the seller typically doesn't review it for any reason other than you know if they have a reason to um like for example my title rep when he when we open a property He'll send me a summary of of the title report along with a copy of it telling me, hey, this is everything that's going on with the title. Um, is there anything out of the, you know, out of the norm? Are there CCNRs? Are there any, you know, um, documents that, you know, covenants um, that have to do with associations, that sort of thing, maybe restrictions in a community as well and provide those documents. So just really kind of analyzing it for you, giving you that information, and then you can make a decision. I would say nine times out of 10, there, there's very few times, I mean, probably 99 times out of 100, are there 
do I've, I've never had an issue with title knock on wood. Um, I had one last week where, you know, like I, I, I mentioned in the show that my seller was selling the property. They had pulled it out of a trust at some point back in like 2012, the, the title company wanted to see a copy of the trust to make sure he had the right to pull that out of the trust and that there were no other heirs that may be, you know, wanting a piece of, of that piece of real estate, um, when it sells and they were doing their job, it was able to, to be provided and, and satisfied. So that's the job and that's when it happens. So anything we want to add to that? How about yeah. this? I, I was yeah. going to ask you some, some agents, not all agents, when they take a listing, will order a preliminary title report to see what is on the property or what liens exist against the property. It, it's, it's limited. I mean, because you don't have all of the data in a transaction, but do you do that? I, do. I mean, yes and no. I mean, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, I've never found it absolutely necessary that it happens up front. Now, occasionally, like if I see a property is in a trust or we have a conversation about something and, you know, uh, you know, something has happened on title, for example, like they think they might be in default or whatever, because you know, we haven't had a lot of those situations. So I pull less of them these days. Um, but I don't really, I know some agents do, they go, they bring them into listing presentations and that sort of thing and have a copy of it. I'm just, I haven't found it necessary. So maybe an interesting sidelight here that also comes into play. Um, anyone can go pull, have a title company, pull a preliminary report on the home, but remember there's individuals involved in the transaction also. So everyone on title and then every buyer in the transaction needs to provide the title company, a statement of, of information that says who they are, where they've lived, who they've been married to driver's license, number residences, employment, all that fun stuff to also make sure that the people involved in the transaction are clear and not bringing any risk to the lender, the buyer, the seller. So it's like Jeb said, 99 times out of 100, it's a non-event. And we did 218 loans last year, maybe two or three title issues throughout all of that. Um, we have one right now, it's a refinance. There were two judgments that still showed because no one went and they were paid. They were paid seven to 10 years ago. No one ever went back and recorded the, the lien release against the property. So even the ones that have issues, the majority of times it's just a nuisance. It's not a, a deal killer or something that would prevent you from, from buying a home or refinancing your home. Nope. Good stuff. Um, so question Alex is saying, uh, are people being fair in blaming the Fed for high home prices when the real problem is low supply? Are they suggesting that the Fed has artificially increased demand? So I think there's a lot of people, smart or not, we, we won't even get into that, that believe that the Fed is the reason for the problem. There's multiple. This is not a one person. You can point the finger and say they're the reason that this happened. There is multiple reasons. I mean, and it goes back to politics, regardless of what side you're on. There's a lot of spending happening. Um, in fact, I just listened to a podcast today from a mentor of mine that talked about this exact scenario, if you will. And that's, you know, you had... You know, every politician that's been in office has spent massive amounts of money. That's created inflation in a sense, you know, where we can't repay it. And on top of that, you have issues with builders not being able to build enough homes. You know, the pandemic, which generated, you know, a, a crisis, if you will, with uh, with regards to, you know, potential recession. Money was added to the economy. More money was added um, after that president added money. And it just it's it's a snowball. And it's been a snowball for some time. This isn't something that just happened in in the last two years. And that's I think people have, you know, supply has been declining since 
2013 or 14 or something. I mean, it's been on a downward trajectory, if you will. Um, if you look at, you know, any of the charts out there, it might even go back further than that. Um, so supply has been declining for some time. It's just been exacerbated from what's going on in the market at the moment. So I don't think the Fed is to blame. The Fed is to blame partially for the inflation that we're seeing at the moment. But you can go back and say that somebody else's problem, too, because it started before they had the problem. So it's it, again, I mean, it's everybody wants somebody to blame. That's the problem. Everybody wants to blame somebody for the problem versus just dealing with what's out there and and moving up. Josh? It, it, it would be foolish to say that the Fed started the fire, but it would also be foolish to say that they haven't done uh, If they haven't thrown gas on it, they've at least fanned the flames. So um, we, we get to an issue that somewhere post 2000, the Fed really got into putting their hand on the scales rather than saying, hey, we're trying to keep it between the lines. They wanted to keep markets um, level so that people don't lose money in the stock markets. They wanted to prop home prices up. So they got away from their their mandates of full uh, full employment and low inflation and got into to controlling markets so that homeowners, consumers, equity holders weren't uh, weren't taking losses and feeling bad about the economy. So they don't they're not blameless, but they're absolutely not the cause or the sole blame. No, I'm trying to think of the name. Have you read um, the creature from Jekyll Island? I have not. Interesting book. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough read in some regard, just because it does get pretty deep, but it is the theory of, of, of how the fed came to be what it is. Um, interesting read. So, you know, for anybody out there that is a conspiracy theorist, it, it, it will just fuel the fire even more. So if you want to fan that flame even more, go out there and read that book again, it, it is a dense read to some extent, but it's uh, it's a good read. Um, so check it out. I don't know who the author is, but they should probably give me a Jeb, shout out. We've got a, a couple of cool, cool yep. comments here. Um, Tony Burton says nobody's selling because they can't afford to replace their house. But a few comments before that, Dave Otley says, I have been slowly taking money off the table by selling properties one by one. I would recommend doing the same. And then he follows up with, I'm selling multiple properties outside of Austin. I'm literally making the market every time I list, meaning that he is the high sale. That is the market until yep. the next one comes along. So the, the thing that I would say, everyone has to make their own decision in, in this. And let's just throw one more comment here because they're all sort of the same discussion. Rodrigo says, I remember in 2008, people were cocky and said housing prices would never go down. I'm starting to have the same feeling now. Um, everyone should be aware there's like red flag markets where you're like run from danger and there's green flag where like jump in with both feet and we're absolutely in the middle. We're in a yellow market. You need to exercise caution. You need to be prudent. You need to analyze all your options and make sure this is the right move for you. And you need to ask, what would I do if things went wrong? What, how could things go differently than I hope or plan or expect? I'm not on that side of the fence, but if I'm entering into any transaction, that's the way I'm looking at it and analyzing. I think anyone should do it. And then back, back to Dave, anyone who has massively appreciated properties and is deciding to take money off the table, more power to you, Total, totally your decision. And there can be good and valid decisions. We always go back to the same question, sell and do what? If these are non-owner occupied properties, you're gonna pay some capital gains taxes on that. So you're gonna give a little bit of it up. And now you have to reallocate that money. There are reasons why hedge funds are buying real estate because there's not a lot of good places to put money. Um, 
Dave may, may be a spectacular investor with a long history of making money in different markets. He may have other opportunities, a business opportunity, any number of places. So everyone should analyze the market, do their own due diligence and make the best decisions for them. And time will tell whether they're the right ones. Selling could absolutely be the right one, even if it's just for peace of mind. I'd like to have half a million dollars in the bank versus a property that I think might, might go down in value going forward. I just thought it was an interesting discussion. Everyone is here, I think, to learn. Uh, you know, if you read through the comments, we got a couple. Not everybody. We got a couple knuckleheads in the comments, but otherwise, most of the people are here because they want to learn. They're trying to wrap their mind around it, and they're not here to be told what the answer is. They're here to hear different perspectives and how you should be analyzing and making decisions for yourselves. So I, I like the discussion that people are thinking through the thoughts that that they need to come to to make the right decisions for themselves. Well, I, you know, this brings like so. There's a lot of comments here, but this is a question. So that I think is interesting and and not in the question itself, but what it makes me think of. So do you guys think, uh, what do we think of the Phoenix market? So yesterday I had, um, uh, actually last couple of days, I've been chatting with someone who currently lives outside of the Bay area. Um, and they are looking at buying in Southern California because of how expensive home prices have gotten up in the Bay area. And now realize home prices here in Southern California aren't, inexpensive by any means, but they are less expensive than they are in the Bay Area. And so people are saying, you know what, instead of paying $2 million or 175 for a house, I can go to Southern California and buy a similar house for one three or maybe one five, $200,000 less. Well, there's just as many people that live here in California in Orange County, where I'm located that say, you know what, Phoenix looks really attractive similar climate for for a good portion of the year outside of the the hot summers um and says you know what even though phoenix has increased considerably and the median home price there is now i don't know i'm guessing 550,000 or whatever the number is even though people in phoenix thinks this market think this market is out of control it can't go any higher there's people here in southern california that say you know what I'm tired of this crap here in California for many reasons, for prices, for politics, for taxes, whatever. I'm going to go to Phoenix and they can buy in Phoenix. Yes, it, it is it is not Southern California for, for different reasons, but they can buy there for less expensive here. And it is better in many ways because of affordability um, than it is here in Southern California. So, you know, when people look at markets, for example, and they say, this market has gone up considerably. It can't go up any higher. I say, no, that's not true for the reason that I just mentioned. And the reason I bring this up is because I'm actually meeting with a client tomorrow who pl is planning on selling their property and moving out of state for that very reason. They're looking at markets that have appreciated, that have done gangbuster returns over the last two years and going, you know what? I can go there. I can pay cash. I don't really care. I'm out of California. It's more affordable. It's I don't have the the crazy, you know, politics happening in the state. I'm willing to do that. So to answer the question, I think Phoenix is a great market. I think it has a lot of potential. You know, if I were to move outside of California, my wife and I had a, a discussion the other day. In fact, we were all around the table. The kids were. And and one of the one of our our sons asked and said, if we were to move, where would we move? And I I made the caveat, well, you got to get out of California. So if you move out of California, where do you go? And my wife and I both said, Arizona seems like a pretty good place to go. I mean, because of, of the reasons that, that I mentioned earlier. So, Josh, what are your thoughts on hearing 
you know, Phoenix market in general and just, you know, thoughts on affordability and people being able to move outside of California and still buy nice property, even though it's higher than where it was a couple of years ago. I'll just, I'll just say this. Um, if you go into any group, um, I'm a moderator in a, a, a real estate and mortgage group for veterans. And you go in there, people from all around the United States, and everyone thinks their market is unique. So you're going, oh, I'm in North Carolina, the market's nuts. I'm in Georgia, the market's crazy. I'm in Maine, this market is insane. They don't, I don't think they read other people's comments or posts. It's crazy everywhere. And so if we look at Phoenix, one of those 10 counties that we talked about, Maricopa County is one of the 10 largest counties. So you have a lot of people moving there. Um, it's getting largely built out. They, they have some building going on there, but it's, it's generally sprawl and, and further out. So you just have to ask yourself, you know, a lot of people that are going there are going from Southern California because an $800,000 house in Southern California is $500,000 out there. And it doesn't sound like a lot. And you go, oh, that's 300, you go, wait, 300,000 is $1,500 a month. Now, if I can get a, a similar job out there and I can now own a home, you know, all of this comes down to personal preference and choice. For me, I would, if I were unable to own a home in Southern California, I would be willing to relocate before I would willing, be willing to be a lifelong renter. Um, there's, there's intangible benefits to home ownership and then the tangible benefits of just making it much easier to, uh, build wealth over the long haul. So I don't know if that was the, the gist of the question. Phoenix is going to be a tough market, just like almost any other market. But if it's an area where you can afford and own a home and set down roots and, and build your family and, and achieve your dreams, I'm all for it. There you go. Um, is this the. We win that I spoke to earlier, Josh. <laughs> what what if it was? That would be awesome. Yeah. I spoke to uh we earlier who was helping me with a loan problem that I have with another client. So if that's you, thank you for the help. You got me further along, and that's what I needed. I need, and, even, and apparent, I need even more tomorrow. Apparently, but, we win is is like Dave Smith or uh, Mike Jones because I, I also told you I went to junior high with a we win. So, maybe that's uh, him. Maybe it's the same one. It could be. Could be. We, We're still buddies. We'll see. Do you remember this face? We you remember. <laughs> you remember that guy, guy right there? Seventh grade. Uh, let's see what we got here. Um, but his question is, where do we see rates uh, at the end of the year? So very hard to predict at this time. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw you to a podcast that Josh and I have. And that episode, we we actually talk about this in detail, 30 minutes of interest rates Tuesday. So the educated home buyer, check it out. We actually answer. I think you answer that question. I think I ask you that question directly uh, towards the end of that episode. So go check it out and um, and get the information from there. So let's see, Josh, Darth Vader, I'm in California under contract for new home construction. Is the lender working with the builder legally have the right to lock my rate without asking me first? So if I'm in contract, let's just say builder or no builder involved, a lender, does the lender have the, the right to lock my loan without me authorizing that? There are no laws that dictate uh, when your loan or rate can or cannot be locked. Um, 
there's also no law requiring you to complete the transaction with that lender. So if they did something that was out of step with your desires and and didn't ask and, and consult with you first, you're absolutely within your right to to move on uh, to move on to another lender. If you want to complete the transaction with them, um, I would reach out to the builder and say, hey. I'm working with your preferred lender, trying to make this as easy as possible, trying to get the incentives that you're giving me to use your lender. And they locked my loan when I was not asking to have it locked. Um, you know, in this market, especially for a builder's lender, um, I would almost bet that if you do not want it locked, that they would want a document from you um, stating that you're acknowledging that there is interest rate risk and you are choosing to not lock your interest rate. But it's really out of the norm for a lender to just lock a rate and not even tell you. All right. There you go. Good stuff. Um uh, Joe is asking, what can you tell us about Corona, California? Is there a chance for prices to drop in that region? There's always a chance for prices to drop. Um, it is it is more affordable in Corona than it is in surrounding cities that people are leaving to, to buy in Corona. Typically people, I mean, I wouldn't say everybody in Corona wants to live in Orange County because that, that wouldn't be true. But I would say that there's a lot of people that are priced out of Orange County that are buying in Corona. Um, and I think with a rise in rates, you're going to have affordability issues, which potentially push more people out to areas like Corona. But with that said, Josh, and I have mentioned this many times, if you do see a correction in the market, which at some point you will, the areas that get hit first are the areas that are further away from the coast. So, you know, Corona would get hit first and maybe potentially a little bit harder than, say, uh, a Huntington Beach, if you will, because uh, of desirability and where people want to be, um, you know, but in the big, in the big picture. Again, yeah. on that, on that scale, they're more protected than Riverside, which is more protected absolutely. than Victorville, absolutely. which is yeah, more the protected you than Marshall. Away, yeah, absolutely. Yep. No, good, good, good information. And, and for the most part, Corona is, is part of Orange County at this point. So many people got priced out of Orange County and went there and now people have got priced out there and are going even, even further. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to uh, just here, uh, just a couple comments. I want to make a comment on this. Prosperous Mark says, we're at the top. Epic housing crash is around the corner. And our friend Christina has been kind enough to kind enough to to stay here. And she's follow up. This is the right answer to someone that says that. Cool, Mark. How do you think this will happen? What's going to make it crash? Just being curious, because there are people who think that the market is at a peak, is going to have a downturn and have valid and researched reasons as to how and why that's going to happen. The response here is, I've been through a few cycles and I see how they end in tears. Hmm. Okay, we've really only had one nationwide downturn ever in housing prices. So I don't know what cycles we've watched. I don't know what similarities you're seeing, but if you have someone who's telling you they have a theory and the theory is I've seen things, you probably should move on to another source. It may still be the right conclusion, but if so, it, it's by pure chance and accident versus reason thought. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, I, I won't even go any further. Um, J, J. Lou, J. Lou, the mechanic. I have a pension, can I use it to qualify for a mortgage? So Josh, pension income, can that be used to satisfy a lender with regards to buying a house? The general rule for being able to use Hold it on. to Let's qualify. See. 10K. 10K a month, it looks like. A month, a year, a week? I don't know. I, 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 need, hope, it's, I, I need, hope it's a I month. I need more info. I hope it's a week. 
So <laughs> your your pension income, any other income is usable to the extent that it is it can be shown that's going to continue for three or more years. So pension generally ends when you die. We don't know when you're going to die. We expect it to be more than three years. So your pension income should always be usable. There you go. And in, in addition to that, Josh, let's talk about other sources of income because it's a common question that we get. Social Security can be used towards uh, income. Um, how about things like disability? Can we use disability income to help qualify? Permanent disability. Permanent if disability. It's, if, it's, if it's temporary, we don't have the three-year continuance or we can't show it. If it's indefinite, um, we can't we, we don't have a doctor's letter saying, hey, five years. I mean, think about that. It, it, you either have permanent disability or it's temporary. Temporary is undefined. We can't prove it's going to last for three years. There you go. Um, Look at, let's go another fun one there. Say, can I use child support? Yeah, you can if it's going to continue for more than three years. So if your kid's 15 and a about half, alimony? you're in trouble. If it's going to continue for more than three years. So we need there a divorce go. decree. So we've had this situation. Jeb, you and I have had a client that I believe she had, it, it was going to be four and a half years. We were able to use it. Now, if she comes back now and refinances, we can't use it because she's only got like two and a half years left on it. Interesting. All right. Um, let's see what we got. Uh, so w William Curry, uh, live in Alabama. Home was worth 80000 in 2008. Purchased a vacant lot on the side of my home and will join them together. How can I know the value of my home in 2022 before paying uh, an appraisal? So I guess my question is, why do you need to know the value of your home if you're just adding the two lots together, if you don't have any plans of selling that property? Um, but the, the, the easy answer is, is get ask a real estate agent that, that question, somebody local to your market that understands land and, and the values in your market, and they can probably help get you a better answer on that. There's no you know click button, get answer on, on something like this. When you take land um, you know, and add it to a property, you know, it's it's valued in different ways. And even tax uh, assessors value land, you know, differently in many ways than the actual value of that land um, from a sales standpoint. So depending on what you're trying to accomplish, um, it may or may not be necessary, but talk to an agent. They should be able to to help you in that regard. Um, let's see, looking to add on or build a detached garage. So even in that case, William, do you need to know the value of the land to build the garage? I mean, unless you're getting a loan, in which case then, then I understand. Um, if you outside of that, not really a need to know if you just plan on doing it anyhow. All right. Uh, Josh, what do you see? What do you see? Um, We've got a little little bit of a confusing one here. Michigan Wolverine says um, it's not a supply problem. Over six million homes sold last year. Six million homes would not have sold. It's a demand issue. Well, if 12 million people want to buy and six million people uh, bought homes, that means six million didn't get a home. So it's absolutely 100% both a supply and a demand issue. We have uh, Michigan Wolverine. I just recommend going back, read through the comments. We've got, you know, a hundred people here that have commented on put in my seventh offer and didn't get a response back. Put in our fourth offer. We wrote a non-contingent offer and didn't get it accepted. The problem is supply. There's not another home for them to go down the street and, and make an offer. The reason why there's not enough supply is because of demand. So there's more demand than there are homes available. A supply demand imbalance. It is both. It can't be one or the other. It has to be both. There you go. 
Um, Chris uh, says, I am buying an off-market property. The seller's condition was to use their loan officer for my loan. Is this legal or not? It is not legal to, to be told you have to use a certain lender. Um, they could ask you to get pre-approved with a lender. Um, I guess in theory, they could ask you to use their lender, but it, it, you don't have to use any certain lender. Um, I don't really know how to answer that question directly, Josh, because you know, can a seller... Ethically, the answer is no, 100%. Ethically, the answer is no. Legally, right. I don't think there's anything preventing yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's, I guess, the dilemma is legally. I don't know that that you can, because a seller can ask for whatever the hell they want to ask for, especially in the environment that you're in now. So, you know, that is um, the dilemma you're in at the moment. Um, I would say, you know, That's a tough one. Uh, you know, if you are planning on going that direction, get another quote from, you know, another source, multiple sources potentially. And if you're considering that, just make sure the terms are good and that you're not getting, you know, higher terms or getting taken advantage of because you're using the seller's lender, so to speak. Right. I mean, if it comes down to it, you'll use them. But, you know, obviously you need favorable terms and all that good stuff. Not an easy question to answer, but in this market, I guess sellers can ask whatever they want, ethical or not. So maybe just give them that Rolls Royce and they'll let you use whatever lender you want. There you go. You can uh, make that part of the deal. Um, Here, here's an interesting comment, Jeb. Um, back to that Phoenix question. Yep. U.S. Cream, USC Renee. I don't know. USC Renee. Let's go with that. I just got back from Scottsdale. I can say with certainty that there's a condo building boom there, but everything is luxury. So again, um, the area is getting built out. So condos um, getting built and the luxury thing is a real issue. Like we talk as much about um, homes being bought by investors, areas being developed by investors to rent out. We also have the problem that the numbers, the margins on luxury homes are much better on entry level homes. So mo much of what is being built is for the high end of the market, not the affordable entry first time buyer. And we we need more of that inventory. So, and it happens to be also the inventory that the investors are buying up. They're not buying the luxury stuff. They're buying the, the entry level stuff that, that makes sense as a rental and has better cash flow. So it, it's a problem all the way around. All right. Got an interesting question we haven't heard before. Interesting in the fact that we haven't heard it before. Uh, but it's something that plays into what we're going in now. And that is, is real estate a better hedge um, against inflation than, say, gold? So gold is done what over the course of history with regards to to value increases i don't know where's gold sit today i i don't follow gold at all it's maybe what 16 1700 uh, an ounce yeah, it, or is it, it more came than that? down this week it was it was rallying last week let me find the chart where home prices on average you know we've seen three to five percent increases year over year for the last 30 to 40 years so you know, it, 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 people would tell you different things, but my 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 answer would be real estate is is a better hedge against inflation. Um, you get to fix your monthly payment, um, whether you're a homeowner or investor or whatever, um, when when costs are rising, uh, and you get the benefits of appreciation, which again is key. And every time you, you mean, not only are you fixing your monthly payments, you're paying down the principal every time you make a payment. So you're for savings every single time. Gold, you own gold. I mean, it, the benefit there, it, I mean, there's not a huge benefit um, in my opinion. Now there's people out there that believe in gold and and 
all of that good stuff and, and the world going to hell and that being the only tradable uh, commodity and all of that. But I'm not a I'm not a big believer in that. Josh, what do you want to add? Uh, just look, if you want to go through this Google inflation adjusted returns for, for both of them, um, housing over the long haul is, is slightly outperformed inflation and Google, Google, gold. Google's probably on, outperformed Google inflation. Google has gone well. way better than inflation. So that's your number one hedge right there. Um, just buy Google. Gold. <laughs> gold over time has uh, at times outperformed and at times underperformed. So um, it's an interesting hedge, but it's generally a hedge and that it's a hard asset where other things get devalued. Um, gold holds its value more so than outperforms over the long haul. There you go. Um, here's another question, Josh. Michael saying, should I aggressively pay down my mortgage? So there are people out there that believe, um, some big financial gurus, so to speak, that believe you should pay down your debt as quickly as possible. Um, I believe in paying down credit cards and car payments and all that stuff and not having that stuff. Real estate, because of, of interest rates being so low, I I I like leverage in that case um, for many reasons. But there, again, there are people out there that believe you should pay those down. Dave Ramsey is is that guy. So what do you think about somebody? Don't be that guy. Huh? Don't, don't be, be that, that guy. guy. So what do you think about paying down a mortgage and not having uh, a monthly payment? I mean, there's a benefit to that for sure. Um, but what, what are your thoughts overall? It all comes back to your alternatives. We talk about sell and do what? So this question is pay down your mortgage or do what? Um, do you have other investments? Are your 401ks fully, uh, fully funded every year? Can you put some money in an IRA? Um, how are those things doing? So if, if your other assets are on track and you are well invested with nice portfolio balances and you want to eliminate that mortgage, have at it. Um, you know, if you refinanced in the 3% or below range, I don't see much incentive to do it unless you just have a bigger mortgage than what you're comfortable with. You know, for me, I, I might pay it down a hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I'm not going to pay it down beyond that because at a certain point, uh, you know, I, I want a, a little bit of the tax write off with the rate as low as it is and the way the tax law is written right now. If you if you have a, a 3% or lower interest rate, and if you have a $500,000 mortgage, it's only $15,000 of interest that you're deducting. And I say only because the standard deduction for a, a married couple is 24,000 and you have a $10,000 cap on your state and local taxes. For a lot of people, when rates were really low, and unless you have a very big mortgage, which you can only have a mortgage, uh, you can only deduct the interest on the mortgage up to 750 after uh, 2018, uh, a lot of people, there's not much of a tax advantage to the mortgage. So it comes down to what what other alternatives do you have and how uh, are your other account balances? So it's personal preference, but it comes down to what your other options are. All right. Al's got a question here. Um, says, are DTI limits static and are buyers with high debt to income ratios more likely to not be able to get a loan? Um, so you know, clearly, I mean, I'll let you jump on this, Josh, obviously you're in a day in day out, but yeah, lenders have guidelines that are a number, but that number can move uh, in theory based on compensating factors um, from the buyer, high credit scores, larger down payment, that sort of thing. Um, but Josh, what are, what are your, what do you want to add to that? I guess. So in, in the olden days, like when I started back in the nineties, Debt to income ratios were pretty much fixed. It, here is the guideline. You cannot exceed that or you can exceed it, but you need two to three of these compensating factors to exceed that. 
we live now in a black box era where everything goes into an automated underwriting system and those automating underwriting systems are always being refined. So it's, it's hard to know. We have a client who uh, we've been working with for like six months, about three months ago, finally got a property in escrow. Turns out the property appraisal came in super low, condition was terrible, couldn't work it out with the seller, backed out. Now the changes to the automated underwriting system in the last three months, we can't get an approval for the guy. He, he had an approval three months ago and can't get an approval at all today. So what changed? It's hard to say because it's a true black box. So on your FHA loans uh, for your best qualified borrowers, you can go to a 47% housing to income ratio and a 57% total debt to income ratio. But some clients, you can't even go that high. On a conventional loan, most everyone can go to 45, but some really well-qualified borrowers can go to 50%. Jumbo loans, for the most part, are a hard 43%. Some will let you go to 45, um, but yeah, it doesn't really change. And absolutely, the higher your debt to income ratio goes, the more likely you are to not have the automated underwriting system accept your loan. And if you go beyond the threshold, so let's say you know you end up with a 48% debt to income ratio, it doesn't matter if you have an 800 credit score and a million dollars in the bank, FHA's automated underwriting system will never approve that. And uh, Smack Smack's question, S Smack, S Smack, not sure. Yes, that is the Al Bundy. Every week he's here. Um, yeah, just drop in. Always asking good questions. So uh, if you guys, you might if you're if you're a millennial, you might not know who it is. Just just saying. Um, but to, to follow up with Al's uh, second question is a red flag to agents if a buyer is at the DTI limit. So yeah, for me it is. Um, you know, if I'm an agent and I'm looking at somebody, I have a, a DU approval from a buyer that's actually legit. If somebody's at the threshold there. It's concerning. Um, now, if I'm able to have a conversation with the lender, they seem competent. They seem to know what they're doing. And then it's not really a big deal. But I'll tell you more often than not, that's not the conversation I'm having with the person on the other side. And so um, if you look through, you know, automated underwriting and their debt to income ratio is high and they're paying off a bunch of stuff in order to to get that debt to income ratio to meet to, you know, to get that threshold, the interest rate doesn't seem accurate on there's a lot of things that I look at as an agent when looking at you know DU approval if you will to figure out if the buyer is truly you know well qualified in in addition to having that conversation with the lender so um it could play a factor not always um but I I would tell you the majority of agents probably can't read them and don't understand how to read them I just fortunately have um a background in it and and understand them which again, is a, is a benefit, especially yep. in, in this environment. Yep. We have a listener to the show that um, self-employed and takes a lot of deductions, obviously trying to keep his income to a minimum. And we worked with him and we figured it out. And it's a 49.987 debt to income ratio. And um, what the, the property that we ended up getting accepted, they wanted us to do a cross qualification. And I was waiting, waiting, waiting to hear this from the lender on the other side. We sent them a beautiful cross-qual package with everything that they needed. She rubber stamped it and we never had a problem. But uh, you know, an agent that knows how to read the, the DU findings and can see that that debt to income ratio is 49.879%, 
is probably going to always ask for a second opinion or to get that cross qual just yeah. to make sure you're you're truly because if i'm off at all in my income calculation the deal's dead and they're tying up the property for their seller so totally understand when that happens and jeb and i or any other realtor that i'm working with when we have that situation we're going to proactively step out and tell them hey I know on paper this looks dicey. Here's why we're comfortable with it. If you want us to run it by your lender, make sure we're all on the same page. We're happy to do it. All right. Good stuff. Um, let's see. I saw a question. Oh, here we go. Uh, Chris says, in Southern California, the homes have appreciated significantly. What was selling for 500 is now being sold for a million, but the real estate agents still charge 5% to sell. Will this change? So not necessarily. I mean, here's the thing. It still takes the same amount of effort and energy and work to, to sell a home. And people are going to be like, yeah, that's crazy. You put it on the market, it sells immediately. That's only one piece of the puzzle. Like you don't see all the other stuff that we're dealing with on the back end. For example, got a deal at the moment that I'm dealing with a lot of stuff on the back end between the buyer, between the lender, trying to put, to keep a deal together. That doesn't change whether the house is $15 million or $500,000. It's the same. And, and I will tell you, even on luxury properties, commissions are pretty, I mean, pretty much the same. Um, now, and there's no set commission, there's no standard commission. So each person's going to vary a little bit. Um, are there people doing lower commissions in this market? Absolutely. Um, because of the environment we're in, we're seeing a lot more of it. It's common. Um, it fluctuates. It always has with with market conditions. Um, so, you know, just do your best to negotiate if you're a seller and find somebody that's, you know, uh, an agent that's willing to, to, to negotiate with you and not just bend over um, when you when you try to have that conversation. Was that the I right always, terminology yeah. there? <laughs> Can so, you say like that? that? Can I say no, that? No, but what, what I always tell people here, absolutely be, be cost conscious in everything. Have the discussion um, with your real estate pro or the real estate pros you are interviewing. But I always tell anyone, if you can win a negotiation with your realtor, you probably need a different realtor. There you go. Um, so Rick, 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 Rick Carrington, he asked a question earlier about HOA. I don't see that question now, but any thoughts on Utah real estate? I don't have a lot other than I know it's another hot market. I mean, that's another market I could live in. I could live in probably South Utah just because of, of again, the climate. There's a lot to do. Hike. You're still pretty close to some some big cities, some cool things to to adventure to if you like the outdoors. No. It's a desirable place. No. Um, Josh no. has no interest, but hey, no. listen. The answer I mean, no. I don't like the cold part of it, but I think there's a no. lot of cool things around it that uh, that play into why people want to be there. Real estate prices being one of them. So uh, I don't have a lot to offer outside of that other than it's been a crazy market for that reason. Josh says no, Rick. Just file that one away for what it's worth. Maybe it may be nothing. I might be pilot, shooting. I might be realistic. shooting my uh, all my videos from uh, from from Southern from Utah a, at some point. I'm from a Walmart. From a Walmart in Utah. Maybe. Hey, if I can buy a Walmart in Utah, it'd be awesome. Jeb, we got we got a good one here. So right. David says my income for 2021 is higher than the previous two years. Loan officer told me I would need my 2021 tax return to qualify. I have not filed it yet. Is my tax return available to use as soon as I file? So a couple of questions here. Um, I'm assuming that you're self-employed. So actually having the, the only way a self-employed borrower can show that they truly earned that income is filing the return with the government and paying the taxes. So 
is my tax return available to use as soon as I file? The IRS is really backed up. So for us being able to get transcripts, it can be six to eight to 12, 14 weeks to get the transcripts back. Most loan programs don't require the transcripts, but in this instance, they're gonna want your tax preparer to provide the proof of filing, or if you do it through TurboTax, you can print a proof of filing. And if you owe taxes, they're gonna require you to prove that you paid the taxes that show on there. Now, if your loan officer, if you're not self-employed and the loan officer is saying you have to file your taxes, probably talk to another loan officer. If you're an employee, once you get your W-2, we can use that income and show that you received it. And even before that, I mean, you have a pay stub all the way through the end of the year. Uh, we can get a verification of employment from your employer to document that. So that's why I'm thinking you're self-employed. And yeah, you're not gonna be able to use that income until you have the tax return. As long as it's a loan program that does not require tax transcripts, you're okay with the proof of filing and proof of payment. All right. Uh, Ved is asking about the the statements from, from the Dallas Fed on the, the bubble concerns. Um, Josh and I mentioned this earlier in the show. Neither of us have dug into the data. Uh, we will do that and, and have a conversation on it next week. Um, of course, meet Kevin did. I mean, the guy's a full-time newscaster at this point. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he got the, the, uh, he probably uh, gets the information before anybody else. Right into his brain. Yeah. I mean, he probably gets it sent to him directly from the Fed at this point, just because of, uh, how much information he puts out there. Uh, we, that's a question we get a lot. Um, already some people answering it, but when I go to refinance my rental property, should I do it as an LLC, um, non-QM loan? So, you know, again, you watch how, I don't watch any house hackers online or anything like that, but I, I can already see the wheels in my head are turning, you know, when people talk about, you know, house hacking and investing in real estate and you need to put everything into an LLC to protect yourself and all of that. Josh, thoughts on LLCs, putting property in them, all that good stuff. If it's a non-QM loan regardless and you want to put it in an LLC because it makes you feel better about the situation, asset protection, whatever, then absolutely do it. Some non-QM lenders won't loan to an LLC, but many will. So it's not impacting the terms of the loan, you're fine. If you're talking Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA, they will not lend to an entity. Um, I have a client that bought a second home out in the desert last year. They're gonna use it for a vacation rental. They just uh, got their LLC created. They're gonna put the, the property into the LLC. Now, the important thing is if we wanna refinance, we have to take it out of the LLC, um, like it's often done with the trust. It's not required with the trust, but sometimes it's easier to do it than, than have the lender review the trust. But with an LLC, you're gonna have to take it out. And depending on requirements of continuity of obligation, you have to make sure if continuity of obligation is required that the underlying ownership interests remain the same. So if it's a single owner of the LLC, it needs to be transferred to that person as the single owner of the property. If it's a husband and wife, then they need to be half owners uh, as individuals outside of the LLC. So it can be a little bit tricky, but in this situation, if you want it in the LLC and the terms are no worse since it's a non-QM loan, do whatever makes you the most comfortable. Just know if you wanna put a standard Fannie Freddie loan on it at some point in the future, it's gonna have to come out of the LLC. There you go. Good stuff. Uh, as Scott says, uh, hit the like button. So I, I will ask that favor now, guys, if you haven't already hit the thumbs up, if you've if we've answered your question, you've gotten any value, you've learned something, uh, you wanted to punch me or Josh in the face, uh, any repeatedly, of that. Repeatedly. Yeah, re re repetitively. I just hit the thumbs up. That lets us know that you, you dislike us and want to punch us in the face. So hit it. We like it. We like punches in the face. It's kind of like the Chris Rock thing, Josh. Uh, but that was a slap, like a 
Yeah, like are you, I knew it are was you, coming. Are you going to go there? <laughs> Not are yet. Ready, are you ready to unveil? You're going to hold it till the very end. Well, I think we should hold it to the end. Should we? Should we even post it? I don't know. I don't really care, quite frankly. Uh, but let's answer some questions here. We'll get it. Um, so, can I factor closing costs into a USDA loan, first-time home buyer mortgage? So, Friday, as of right now, I have a video recorded with uh, one of the lead um, people from the USDA. I actually don't even know his title at this point. I say lead people. Uh, he He's worked for the USDA for 30 years. He came on a video, answered questions for about 20 minutes with regards to USDA. That video, I think I'm going to post it on Friday. Um, at this point, but uh, we answer this question in there. And and the answer is yes, if the value of the home appraises for more than you offered on it. So if you bought a house for say $100,000 and the appraisal came back at 105, you can actually factor up to $5,000 worth of closing cost into that purchase um, and have them covered as part of your loan. So that is an option, but we dive into it in more detail. So just check out the video when it drops and if you're interested in USDA, you can have all things answered um, by someone that actually knows them very, yeah, very well. That's an expert on the program. Yeah, that, that is a truly an expert. I mean, been doing it 30 years, knows, I mean, and actually doesn't do loans. So he's not there to sell you anything. He is there merely to provide you with education, which is honestly quite hard to find in this environment. Somebody that just wants to provide you answers every week and not ask for anything other than you hitting the thumbs up button. Huh, interesting. Oh, imagine that. Uh, and there's one on the screen. Anyhow, we'll take that off. Josh, I did see another question that I wanted to You ask. find it. I got a fun one here. I actually like this. Oh, the Great Gatsby says, he gives $2. and said, appreciate your insight. So we appreciate your $2. Or I appreciate your $2. Josh doesn't get anything from that. Um, Jeb goes and buys a 40s of steel reserve and hangs out at the liquor reserve. store by his house. Oh, that's great. Dude, I, so, I can only imagine if I did that, how like quickly I would throw up. So did, did you guys, did you ever do Edward 40 hands when you were in college? You know, no, we did not. I have no idea. You don't know what, do you know what it is? No. So this is probably not, um, uh, uh, many people probably don't find this funny or, uh, uh, see the humor in it, but you, you basically take forties. And you duct tape them to both hands. So you have one in, in each hand. Everybody has it. They're duct taped. And you can't literally go to the bathroom until they're gone. And so but the thing is, they're attached to your hand. So by the time you finish one, the other one's already hot. And you have to drink them. And so you spring up steel reserve. That is the kind of garbage we duct tape to our hands because <laughs> it had to be awful. And so it just ended up debauchery at the end of the day. This is 20 years ago. I've, you know, there was somebody at the, be the beginning of the show that Listen, said I was very articulate. That that's before is six now. steel reserves. That's that before is now. Six that steel is not reserves. back then. But anyway, Jeb, Jeb has a wine fridge at his house full of steel reserves. Don't believe him for a minute. King Cobra. Yeah, we did King Cobra too. Edward Forty Hands. See, there's there's my people, and you guys are my people down there. The people that know. And the people that really know are the people that know what happens when you have Edward 40 hands and you still have to use the bathroom. Those are the real people that know. But anyway. So back to the question at hand. T. Yat 
day trader says, uh, you said interest rates can't go too high because the government can't afford to pay interest on the money borrowed. Does government have adjustable rate or wouldn't they be locked into the set rate they borrowed at? They do not have adjustable rates, but they control the maturity. So if you want to do something fun and, and interesting in your free time, look up uh, treasury debt by maturity and you'll see most of it is at shorter maturities. So when the, those come due, they don't have the money to pay them off, so they have to borrow again. So basically, when a three-month treasury, when a two-year treasury, when a three-year treasury, when a five-year treasury matures, they've just been paying interest on it. They now have to issue a new five-year or a new three-month or a new two-year to replace it. So you have interest rate risk as it gets rolled over to where the market is at. You would have thought when we had the 10-year treasury at 0.38 for a week or 0.65 for whatever, that they would have sold as much treasuries as possible to lock these in in a longer period of time. It's just not how the government does it. And I'm sure there's people way smarter than me that could tell you exactly why they do it the way that they do. In general, the shorter term debt is at lower interest rates. So they're trying to keep the rates down, but you have to look at it as sort of a weighted average of all of the treasury debt and then a weighted maturity as to when it's, it's coming due. There you go. Good stuff. Um, someone earlier asked a question about NACA, NACA, however you want to pronounce it, loans. I don't see the question at the moment because I've the comments have been, you know, taken over by people that know Edward Forty Hands. Uh, here it is. Um, NACA. So here's the thing. Josh and I have never done a NACA loan. Um, had a client buy a house using NACA. I did a video, I don't know, it's been probably a year and a half at this point, maybe even longer. If you're considering using it, go read. I say this every time. Go read just the comment thread. You don't even have to watch the video. Just read the comment thread on that video, and you'll get a really good idea of what the program is and whether or not it's it's reasonable for for you to consider. Um, it's it's very difficult for many people to use it. Qualify. It takes a long time. Um, it is one of those things that in my head is way better on paper and in the way it's presented than than the actual process in and of itself, even though I, I have no firsthand experience with it. I'll be completely honest, right? I just, I've talked to enough people and read enough comments to get a really good idea and just of, of, of how it operates. So if you're considering it, you're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use the term waste your time um, on it. Just know what you're getting into before you, you spend months going through that process, maybe even years in some cases. Josh, can a married person buy or refinance without the spouse if they maintain a prenuptial agreement? Without the spouse, the, the prenup has nothing to do with it. You can buy or refinance and in a community property state, the spouse has rights in the property. They have to specifically give them away. California is a community property state. So if, um, let's say if Jeb and I are married and we wanna go buy together and I don't want Jeb on title, he has to sign an interspousal deed giving away his rights so that I'm the only owner. Let's say we bought and he didn't do that. So we're both owners of the property and I wanna refinance and I don't want him on it. He would have to sign that interspousal deed again. So the prenuptial agreement basically says how assets are gonna be divided after a marriage goes south. Um, this stuff has to be decided on the way in because the rights of each spouse dictate how the lender is going to look at uh, the transaction, if that makes sense. 
There you go. Good stuff. Um, let's see. There was another one here I wanted to get to. It's pretty easy to answer. Um, Josh, Rick, Rick Carrington. Um, if he's the Rick Carrington's also a YouTuber in uh, Phoenix Market, I believe. Um, not not the same Rick Carrington. I just see the photo. So sorry, Rick. I, I confused you with someone else. And actually, his main name might not even be Rick Carrington. Carrington at all it's rick something but anyhow how, uh, how many edward 40 hands are you into tonight so far none at the moment but maybe we do an epic maybe we do one where we do <laughs> no, that not where not we have to sit reserve. here and do two not hours with, with edward reserve. 40 hands dude it uh, could be it would be the most watched it would be hilarious by the end right now it would just yeah. be full on like have you ever listened to uh when tim ferris grabs a bottle of vodka and just answers questions for two hours as he drinks more and more of it Yes, it gets fantastic towards the it end. It gets unlistenable by the end. That's what I'm looking for here. I think that's the way to get viewers. That's what I've been told. Um, that or lie about data manipulation. Um, Rick Mahone, yes, that's who I was thinking of. Uh, anyhow, so Rick Carrington has a question here. Uh, says, if you want to take out 30K out of my property with $100,000 equity, what's the best way to do it, Josh? It's a loaded question because I got to ask you like 10 questions to get you an accurate answer. How much do you owe on the first mortgage? What is your interest rate? How much is the home worth? If you have a million dollar home with $100,000 of equity in it, you don't have very much equity according to a lender. Because if you take 30 out, you only have 70 left, 7%, they're going to go no dice. If it's a $200,000 property, you got 100,000 equity, no worries taking 30,000 out. So those are the things that, that it's going to come down to. Always tell people it's a pretty simple math in terms of this. How much do you owe on the first and at what interest rate? How big is this $30,000 that you want out relative to that first? And how much higher would the rate be on a new first mortgage with that $30,000 versus keeping the current loan with $30,000 of second mortgage? So I hate to answer a question with 18 questions, but that's the way we, we analyze it. There you go. Good stuff. Um, Wesley comes in and says, we did Edward Canhands. When I was in college, um, I don't feel like can hands is fair because I think the biggest can they make is like 22 ounces, right? So you could easily do that. You need a 40 because the 40 is is tough, man. Holy cow. Is it tough? It's been a long time since I've done it. And I think I'd probably die today if I if I did. So I'm, my, my, I think my, we're going to set it up. We're going to set it up on the show. not working here. What's, what's the GCF? Do you just, do North Carolinians I, know this? I ignored it because I didn't under, I didn't know what it was. I want to so know just, what it is. I'm intrigued now. In the GCF, in the greater coastal Florida, central Florida. And the GC, I was in the GCF. I, I didn't, I was, I looked at I it quickly and didn't Wesley, have Wesley, I hope you're here and I hope you enlighten us. Enlighten us with the GCF. Maybe somebody, maybe a viewer knows. <laughs> And Willing Willing comes in and says Ben Carson is alive. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's at, uh, at an hour fifty nine. That shuts it down. That's the last. Uh, that is tonight. that is fantastic. <laughs> uh, it's so good. Uh, and Vanessa, I'm willing to take your challenge. Uh, I'm willing to take your challenge. Vanessa <laughs> is a lender, and um, <laughs> that's great. So, do you think Will Smith slapped Chris Rock because the thirty-year mortgage rate had reached five percent? Now, so I now, think this is at the point in the show the that, we, it, it, that we're going to leave it here. Hold on, a minute. we're going to throw something on the screen here in just a moment. 
But what I'm going to say here is every Wednesday we're back, guys. We do a live show for two hours um, every Wednesday answering your questions. We are going to take this this podcast or this this each week and turn it into a podcast, which is going to drop on our platform, The Educated Home Buyer, uh, every Friday. Uh, so two hours of this information will be available audio. Check it out. Uh, if you haven't already, hit the thumbs up, hit the like button. Um, we're going to go out in style this week, guys. Many of you guys have been you know, asking for something similar. So we're going to put it out there for you. There it is. There it is. Uh, that makes me laugh every time I see it. <laughs> How can it? It is just, it is fantastic in many, many ways. Uh, willing, we've missed you as well. So anyhow, we appreciate you guys being here as always. Appreciate the support. Um, let us know your comments in the, uh, in the description on, uh, on 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 the, the little meme there since uh hey, since willing was making fun of me i, I wasn't going to do it but i'm going to point out that in his absence i believe his girlfriend showed up twice twice in his absence all right so oh yeah actually, oh no she did she did i yeah. was reading the comment sorry yeah no all right guys uh we appreciate you being here appreciate the support check out the podcast support us all that good stuff here to provide info adios Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.